This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In this week's episode, Suave interviews Judge Stephanie Sawyer, a common pleas judge in the County of Philadelphia Criminal Division. Primary driver of this mass incarceration uh, phenomenon is uh, our drug laws our mandatory minimum sentencing around drug laws. Judge Stephanie M. Sawyer was born in Queens, New York, and grew up and resides in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's a product of the Philadelphia public school system, attending J.R. Masterman, Philadelphia High School for Girls. She went on to earn an undergraduate and law degrees from Temple University. Judge Sawyer is a single parent of two children who was raised by a single parent, where she learned commitment to the community and understanding that hard work is the key to success. Judge Sawyer was sworn in on July 16, 2014, to the Court of Common Pleas Criminal Trial Division in Philadelphia County. Previously, she was a municipal court judge and private practice attorney, also in Philadelphia. When Judge Sawyer made the jump from lawyer to judge in 2014, she immediately began to work on a form of restorative justice that targeted judicial changes to how sentencing and supervision occur. These changes focus on utilizing existing nonprofit organizations and social services in a purposeful manner designed to reduce recidivism. By 2018, this method was dubbed resource-based sentencing and supervision, which Judge Sawyer continues to cultivate and expand. Since her appointment, Judge Sawyer prides herself on providing fairness upon which every Philadelphian who comes before her can rely. She speaks to our host, Suave Gonzalez, about her experience and the incredible next steps in her journey. We're truly honored to have her on the show. want to be a kind of judge that continues to be the beast that is mass incarceration. I want to welcome you to Death by Incarceration. It's an honor for us to have this conversation with you about the Sentencing Foundation. So for the records, for the people that's hearing us out in the world, who are you? How did the Sentencing Foundation come about? Okay, well, my name's uh, Stephanie M. Sawyer. I'm actually a judge of the Court of Common Pleas. I was initially appointed as a municipal court judge in Philadelphia. And anytime you have an appointment, you actually win an election to get your entire term. And so I was appointed in 2014, but in 2015, I won a um, 10-year term as a court of common pleas judge in the city of Philadelphia. So in criminal court, anything that carries a felony type level offense would wind up in my courtroom or in the courtroom of a court of common pleas judge in a criminal division. The sentencing foundation was not something that was even in my purview as something I was thinking about when I first hit the bench. 
in 2014 when I first hit the bench, the only thought that I had, it was that I was not going to be a kind of judge that continued to feed the beast that is mass incarceration. And so in order for me to figure out what I was going to do, I really started from a perspective of determining what I was not going to do. And so it was always my endeavor to look at the difference between those folks that are just desperate making really bad decisions or, or lack of education that making really bad decisions versus those that came from nefarious point of view where they're only going to wreak havoc on the rest of us, right? You know, there's a big difference between a child molester and somebody who's on the corner selling drugs to feed his family. A very big difference between those two folks. And they're both felony level crimes, but I don't know that there has been a, con a concerted effort to treat them differently, right? And so then I had to kind of look at what was it about the current criminal justice system, whether it's the state level or the federal level, what is it about the criminal justice system that continues to feed the beast that is mass incarceration? And I had to kind of look at the path that most cases in a criminal courtroom go through once a person is determined to be guilty, whether they plead guilty or whether there is a waiver trial, meaning a trial in front of a judge, or whether there is a um, jury trial, meaning a trial in front of a jury that determines them to be guilty. Once the person is found guilty, rather pleading or not, they have to face a sentencing judge, right? And I find that, that sentencing judges, generally speaking, only really there to kind of punish people, right? Except for what I call like carve-outs, right? I call like carve-outs of the criminal justice system. So for example, the ARD, as an accelerated rehabilitation disposition is what the acronym stands for, right? ARD is the, the district attorney saying, okay, this person has a zero prior record score, meaning they've never been convicted of anything before. And this person has a lower level offense, like maybe a DUI or something like that. Um, they say, okay, I don't want to put this person through the criminal justice system. So we're going to carve out folks with those kinds of uh, lack of, you know, uh, involvement in the criminal justice system. We're going to treat them like this, give them an opportunity not to have to go through the system. Or specialty courts like drug treatment courts saying hey drug addicts act a different way and because you fit this kind of a bill let's carve you out of the system and treat you like this or veterans court well you're a veteran so let, let's kind of carve you out of the system and treat you like this or you know mental health court hey this person may not have the requisite level of mens rea you treat them like everyone else so again these are attempts Specialty courts are attempts to, based upon fitting certain criteria, carving them out the criminal justice system and treating them differently. But that always left me thinking, well, what about the rest of the system? What about what happens to everybody else, right? Shouldn't, oughtn't the system be individually uh, 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 addressing folks because people are as different as snowflakes. And so... The appropriate way and what's fair for a person has to be thought about individually and on that one level. And so I found that the system didn't do that. In fact, I found that, you know, when a person was sentenced in front of a judge, they basically got flubbed off to probation or the Department of Corrections and 90 something percent get out. And so they're immediately moved to a pro parole officer. 
And the next time that sentencing judge actually sees the person that they sentence them is when a probation or parole officer is so frustrated that they opine revocation or they get a new case or a new conviction. So in that respect, judges are really only there to drop the hammer. And so I wanted to make sure that I did something differently. And so that's where I started coming up with actually bringing the resources into the courtroom and ordering the defendants as part of their sentence to use resources to address the reasons for their offense in the first place. So for the people, for the people out there that perhaps don't think that this is normal, what, what, what message you have for the people they probably saying, oh, wait a minute, this is not the way we're supposed to be doing things. Because traditionally, everybody knows that when parole violates you or put a tech on you, normally the judge do what the parole officer wants. Well, that's, that's, that's true. That is how it happens. Uh, um, and it kind of, uh, again, it happens mainly because the judge when the person comes back in front of them, the judge generally says, well, probation and parole sees this person regularly and I have no experience with this person. And that's why they wind up following the recommendations. And that's why they wind up using everybody, including probation and parole. Because how many times have you heard a defendant say, oh, I better do this or that or my, or my PO is going to lock me up? How many times have you heard something like that? I mean... I go through it every time because I am a person that's on lifetime parole. So, right. you know, if I don't pay my supervision fees, if, if I don't pick up that phone when parole call, I fear that parole might violate me. And even though I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, I still I still live with that fear. Right. Because we are not being offered a resource list. You know, right. I, re I remember coming home, I had to do everything on my own. After 31 years of incarceration, I have to learn how to get an ID, get how, how to get my driver's license, get how to maneuver a system that I wasn't familiar with. There wasn't even in place when I went in. So, but I do understand what resources could do and the impact. But for the millions of people that's hearing us, that perhaps say, this is not normal. That's not what judges are supposed to do. You say you answer to that in what manner? That, yes, you're probably right. That's not what most judges do. But I believe that's what judges should do. And so my answer to you is like, listen, just because something is one way and it's not. First of all, how's that working? Right. To not have judges give out resources and be part of the solution. I say it's not working at all. That's what I, that's the first thing I say. The second thing I say is that the Sentencing Foundation is, in fact, intended to make resource-based sentencing and supervision. That's the name of the program that, that was developed. It's able to make resource-based sentencing and supervision equally duplicatable in every courtroom. And so right now, we're at the beginning of that happening. And so it might not be your experience. And quite frankly, as I said before, it's not your experience, but... Isn't that the reason why it's so hard when you get out of jail to stay out? Right. You know, to me, I think that this is groundbreaking work that could potentially change the way the criminal justice system look at repeated offenders. It's also speak value of the judge. It's speak value because traditionally it's us against the court. That's the main... 
that's the mentality. You know, it's it's very it's very rare that you're gonna find a judge that say, you know what, I'm not gonna lock you up. I'm gonna send you to go get counseling because you need counseling. It's very rare because most of the time it's so easy to just put somebody away and say, you know what, just max out your sentence and get it over with for nothing because most of the time that person is probably gonna come out and repeat on a new crime because nothing was done. No resources was given, no issues was addressed. That person is probably still depressed, probably still going through some trauma that never has been addressed. But when they go to your courtroom, it's a different experience. And I'm speaking from experience because I sat in your courtroom and I witnessed your work. But I have to ask you this, being at the front of this groundbreaking work, do you find it hard or do you think that the rest of your colleagues support this work across the border? Okay, so that's a loaded question. First of all, first of all, yes, it is very hard. Second is, I'm not going to say that my colleagues do or don't want it. My colleagues are human beings like everybody else. You know, you take a group of people that are accountants or police officers or judges or lawyers. They're human beings, right? And people are comfortable with what the norm is. People are comfortable with what's usual. So whenever someone tries something that's different, that's outside the norm, different is, is met with apprehension. Different is met with suspicion. Different is met with uncomfortability. And so I, I would not go so far as to say that my colleagues would not like to do this. I just think, I'll answer it this way, right? One of the things that made me run for judge in the first place is because after 23 years of practicing as a lawyer, I sat and I kind of looked at the whole structure and I said, you know, a lot of these folks sitting in robes on the bench, they're not bad people. It's just that they're ill-equipped, right? If you were born and raised on the main line and then you're elevated to become a judge and they put a robe on you and then you sit in a courtroom and you hear a story about something that happened, you know, in North Philly or, 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 or down the bottom, or, or, you know, Kensington or someplace that is equally rough. And this is a place and with people and situations that these judges don't have a frame of reference for. They haven't grown up with folks that have been in this situation. They haven't been in these situations. And so it's difficult, if not impossible, for someone who is so far removed from people and situations, but tasked with judging what fairness is. And so, yeah, a lot of times they don't hit the mark, but it's not for nefarious reasons. It's, it's, it's because they're not equipped to do so. And so that's another reason why resource-based sentencing and supervision, which is the name of the program that I created, was, was actually created. It, it, it's a, a blueprint on how to be more intentional when making decisions of justice so that they are actually a just decision even though they're people and their situations that you may not have a frame of reference for. Me, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I started working when I was 14 years old. I started college when I was 16 years old. I worked two and three jobs to get to and through college and law school. I'm a single parent raised by a single parent. I have people that I know that are good people, but still get got caught up in the criminal justice system. So I came from a position of understanding things that a lot of my colleagues maybe didn't understand. So I won't say 
that they have really a decision whether they like it or don't like it. I think it's just so foreign to them that they're apprehensive waiting on the sideline, waiting to see whether or not we can actually do this heavy lift and make this become the norm. But I'll be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. Knowing what's going on across the country with progressive prosecutors, that a lot of them are being recalled. We've seen that in San Francisco with Chesa Bodine. Um, he was recalled because people blame crying on him. Now we've seen it in Philadelphia with mm-hmm. Larry Krasner. Don't you fear to a certain extent that this could fall under the same lines? I do believe that people can misconstrue what resource-based sentencing and supervision is and try to, for their own personal reasons, put a light such as that on it. Sure, it can happen. And all I can do is is kind of explain how this ain't that, right? Because I'll say it to you like this one. I sentenced somebody recently, maybe a couple of months ago. He uh, was almost 60 years old, hadn't had a conviction in 20 years, but he was convicted, rightly so, I would say. It was a jury that did it, but I certainly presided over the trial and I watched it, and he was convicted, rightly so, of having taken an 11-year-old and brought her to a secluded area of of a public recreational facility and was exposing himself, you know, obviously about ready to try to to, to sexually assault this little girl, and somebody happened upon them and and tried to stop them. Instead of running away, he turned around and pulled the knife on them, and luckily the tussle ended up with him running away, and the child didn't get violated in a way that she would never forget. But when I sentenced him, I don't have any programs for him. He went straight to jail. So this is for a judge to individualize your sentence and know the person that you're sentencing based upon what the crime was. Was it a violent crime? Was it a nonviolent crime? If there was any violence involved, you know, what were the attenuating circumstances? You know, I can recall a situation as a lawyer where there was this young man that uh, actually shot someone else. And when you hear that somebody, you know, shot someone, you go, oh my God, that's horrible. But what had happened was, This young man had a sister, only sibling, only sister. Mother and father had passed, and he was, you know, the one looking after his sister, who happened to be seven months pregnant. He came to visit his sister and opened the door, and she was sprawled out on the bottom of the floor because an abusive boyfriend pushed her down the steps, and she was bleeding. And he scooped her up, took her to the hospital. She lost the baby. And, yeah, he shot him. And so, first of all, the guy didn't die, so it wasn't a murder, right? But... That's a different circumstance than somebody that sprays the whole corner because, you know, somebody took their money or something stupid like that. I I just say that resource-based sentencing and supervision, it gives resources to those whose motivation for their crime was desperation or a lack of education. It is not for every single person, right? There are some people that are so damaged that they're only going to wreak havoc on the rest of us. There are some people that are sadistic and they're so broken that they take some kind of pleasure out of hurting other people. I'm not talking about giving leniency to any of them. I understand, but I'm playing devil advocates here for a little bit because I want people to understand that what we're talking about is not something that you normally hear in your courtrooms across across America. What we're talking about is groundbreaking work. 
right? When we hear reforming the system, right? This is what I believe is reforming the system. This I is agree. this is what I believe is reforming the system. Because I, I I I hear that often. We interview a lot of people on this show, and they all talk about we want to reform the system. And I always ask the same question: How is you going to do that? And it's always the same cookie cutter answer. Always the same answer. When I get in office, this is what I'm going to do. Right? Same same answer. But what we've seen here today with the sentencing foundation is something that I believe could have a major effect across the border in the United States. Because if judges, if judges would get to know at least 1% of the person they're standing in front of them, I believe the sentences would be different. I I agree. And, And this is what I think distinguished you from everybody else. You take the time to know the person in front of you and not put him in the same mode like, every, oh, you ain't here, you did something bad, you're going in. That's the difference. This is why I think that people should pay attention to um, the Sentencing Foundation because it's real, it's coming, they can't stop it, they can't stop it, and they welcome to join. Exactly. They're welcome to join because I believe that this is a movement that yep. sooner than later would take a life of its own because it's unheard of. And again, I know thousands and thousands of people in the system. I know thousands of people that's been home on parole. And I know a lot of people, including myself, that's been violated by parole for nothing only to find out this guy didn't do nothing. But it's too late because I already spent three months in jail. I already lost the job. I already lost my apartment. I already lost because the parole felt that that's what they had to do because they had an attitude and because they had a judge on their corner. They say, if the parole brought you here, I'm going with them. I don't even want to hear what you got to say, right? So, but with the sentencing on foundation, what I see, it's different. None of them judges ever asked me, hey, have you ever received treatment for the trauma of incarceration for 31 years? None of them asked me that. Have you ever seen somebody for some therapy? Have you, you know, it's a whole lot of issues they play into a person not wanting to go see parole or a person can't pay supervision fees. A lot of the time, and I have a guy, I have a job, but a lot of the time I don't have the funds to pay my parole fees. Right. Because if I do, I can't buy food, or I can't pay rent, or I can't pay the phone bill, or I, you know, it's always something. But parole don't want to hear that because they feel, and this is not an attack on parole because I do work with some parole agents that are pretty decent, you know, but there are some gun hold that just, oh, you're going in, it's a violation, you know, and, 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 and then they feel because they have a judge on their side that, okay, I'm gonna take you in front of the judge and just violate you and get rid of your caseload and pass that caseload to someone else. And it, and to me, it's the, we, we doing the same thing. It's the same cycle. Recycle, put them in and get them back and put them in and get them back. But with this, your honor, I must say, you are breaking ground 
on a new way of reforming the system. Let me unpack a couple of things, right? Because the first thing is there's a difference between somebody in, in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania getting what they call a county sentence or a state sentence. When you get a state sentence, there are legislative things in place that give the state parole board certain leeway and take certain discretion away from the judge. So number one, I think that the reason why it was structured, it, it has been structured the way it is it's structured is because it requires the judges at sentencing to look at the situation differently and first make a determination whether or not this person needs a state sentence or whether this person needs some real substantive guidance. And so when I say that, if I'm sentencing a cat that has two possession with intent to deliver and a 10th grade education, I can set my watch to his third one. He doesn't know what else to do to be able to survive. So that is the reason why you don't give him a state sentence because number one, he's not been a violent person. Most people that stand on the corner, most of my corner boys, they're frustrated entrepreneurs, right? If they could just change their product or they are drug addicts. So one of the two, but as long as they're not violent folks, Putting them in jail for a long time is going to make them violent people and harden them as opposed to giving them a stake in society, giving them a reason not to reoffend. A lot of people that are traumatized, who, who life has just dealt them a crappy hand hard, they, they, they don't care about their life. So what makes you think they're going to care about you? You have to first give them, one, a reason to care about their own life give them a stake in society and then they have something to lose and not going to want to offend. That to me is far more powerful than thinking you're doing anything but feeding the beast that is mass incarceration by throwing somebody in jail for five or ten years because they got caught on their third possession with intent to deliver. Like, that's ridiculous. There are so many crimes that do not involve violence to people. Like, violence to property, that comes from desperation, right? That comes from poverty. That comes from those kinds of things. So fixing those issues is what will make society safer. Right. So now that the Sentencing Foundation is, is ready to roll out, what are the expectations? Well, the expectations are that the Sentencing Foundation is intended to be the logistical support for resource-based sentencing and supervision, right? Resource-based sentencing and supervision is the actual program that I run in my courtroom that's equally duplicatable in any jurisdiction, but it needs logistical support. Like, so the resources that I use in my courtroom won't be available and say D.C. Or, or, you know, Ohio, because the service area for the resources I'm using don't carry that far away. So the Sentencing Foundation is for interested judges to register. They're, all they got to do is after we get our website launched, which will, you know, you know, is happening on December 1st. Once the website is launched, all they have to do is contact the Sentencing Foundation and say, hey, I'm a, particip- I'm a judge that is interested in participating. They register and then they get the binder, the resource-based sentencing and supervision binder that teaches them step by step 
how to use interns to get the resources in their area, how to make a system of accountability. Each subsequent status listing, you ask the defendant, hey, defendant, how's the, the, the resource I gave you working for you? And then you ask the resource, how's the defendant working? Is he showing up? Resource-based sentencing and supervision is intended to be a system of accountability whereby the resources being used and the defendant using them are directly accountable to the supervising, the sentencing and supervising judge. So that with the status listings that come up, now the judge is beginning to have a relationship with the defendant and understanding whether you're getting a bunch of excuses or are there reasons and further challenges that need to be addressed, right? Because that's the only way you can unconfuse probation and parole of thinking they have the authority of always locking people up. But being fair to probation and parole, they're overworked and underpaid. So judges are relegating a very difficult job to probation officers and they have a caseload that's out the zoo. Then they become desensitized from caring for each person because you're asking me to wear myself thin to care about everything going on with this person for thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year and, and overworked. So, so a lot of them become desensitized just to be able to get to the next day. Being fair, that's the reason why resource-based sentencing and supervision is essential. And what it does is it brings the term public servant back to the job of judge. Instead of getting elected as a judge and everyone around you has to revere you, you need to revere the citizens in front of you that helped you be a judge because, you know, the compensation for judges versus the compensation for probation and parole, they're vastly different. So the care to the individual citizen in your courtroom ought to be vastly different. So I'm not here to bash probation and parole because, you know, that's like bashing a public defender for not having every detail on the case known when they had 40 cases that day versus private counsel who only had that one. It's just not fair. I mean, I understand that, and I, I totally agree. But I must say, Your Honor, that I have ran into some parole officers that are just not fit for the job. Well, look, because they're dealing, they dealing with a lot of trauma themselves. And I say that, and, and I say that because I do work with a lot of parole officers for my program at Community College. I'm in contact with them. And I always tell the parole officer, how, why do you want to violate this person because this person gave you attitude? Like, have you asked them all hard if that person ate breakfast? Have you asked them if they ate dinner? Have you asked them how they been medically wise? You know, there's a lot of things they play into when I go see my parole officer and how I come across. You know, and, 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 and a lot of them think because the person just gave you, oh, I don't know, them type of answers that they don't really care. And when it's really trauma and I keep going back to that because I believe that 90 percent of the people that's been incarcerated haven't been properly treated for the trauma of incarceration, for the trauma of childhood coming up in these neighborhoods, witnessing all types of stuff. I know I haven't. And uh, I'm due. 
And I say this, that Perot should be happy to have a judge like you because not only are you facilitating in the caseload, you are actually providing something that parole normally don't provide, which is resources. Parole, and, and, and like I said, this is not bashing parole. They overworked, they overloaded, caseloaded, but they don't have a lot of resources to give anyone at all, at all. So we all, all of us this in this field have to play our part. We can no longer, ladies and gentlemen, if you're hearing me, we can no longer take the mentality of us against them. Sure, you're right. Not in America. Not in America when every four out of five people know someone that's been affected by the criminal justice system. We cannot take that position. We all got to play our part. You know, we all got to say, you know what? I know some resources that could be beneficial to you. So my next question to you is, how do the public, perhaps these nonprofit grassroots organizations, they are the one that's really dealing with a lot of people returning home. How do they get involved with the Sentencing Foundation? The same way the judges do, because that is exactly how the Sentencing Foundation is intended to work. Resources need to register with the Sentencing Foundation just like judges need to register with the Sentencing Foundation because the Sentencing Foundation in being the logistical support for resource-based sentencing and supervision will match judges to resources in their in the resources service area and then will also provide the, will provide the judges the, the comprehensive tutorial on the resource-based sentencing and supervision binder so they know step-by-step how to recreate exactly what I do in my courtroom. And then the resources will also be matched with the Sentencing Foundation. So say, for example, I know lots of folks that have spent time down. They come maybe five, ten years down. They come out and they want to help, but they don't know how to help. You register with the res- with the Sentencing Foundation. We have tutorials that will teach people how to get their own nonprofit organization. We'll send you the paperwork. We will have a, a helpline where somebody, when you contact us, will walk you through getting the paperwork filled out so you can get your own 501c nonprofit organization. And as we develop moving forward sometime next year, we're hoping that we will then take those those resources that are registered with us and become certified resources, and they will be able to apply for funding. Only the small ones, right? This, we're not talking about trying to fund the Red Cross, right? We're talking about a lot of folks that are re-entry folks that earnestly, you know, who better to help a drug addict be- become sober but a former drug addict? Right. To help somebody navigate coming out of jail and staying out than somebody who's already done it, right? These are the folks that need to get nonprofit organizations, and these are the folks that need to be able to get funding enough to help the people around them. Like, you know, I call myself a dot connector. Like, I like to connect different dots. There are a lot of programs out there because, look, now we're at a, a stage in, in, in this criminal justice awareness level where we know that mass incarceration is not sustainable. Rather, you got there because it's just logistically uh, unworkable to house and feed that many people. Or rather, you got there because of the incredibly 
high horrific toll that is taken on the family and the human experience. However you got there, there is no credible argument that mass incarceration is something that needs to move forward. And with that agreement, there are funds out there. There's ways to, te- to, to teach people how to get grants and to work together and to be able to like put together a comprehensive plan for those folks that they are if their involvement is due to a lack of education or desperation. Those folks are the folks the resource-based sentencing and supervision is designed to help get out the system and stay out the system. So my question is, locally, do the Sentencing Foundation go out and meet with the potential partners? Do they go out and train them? Do they have like a conversation one-on-one? Or do they just do they just read the binder? You know, because I believe that a lot of these local organizations in Philadelphia um, are what we call, and I'm talking about as a person that's spent 31 years incarcerated and returned back to the community as a community member. Or a lot of these reentry organizations that we see in Philadelphia are nothing but referrals, which is you go here, they give you a piece of paper to go to another place, they give you another. By the time you get to the fourth place, you're frustrated and you don't want to go. Exactly. So, so look, this is why it, uh, the Sentencing Foundation being the logistical support for resource-based sentencing and supervision, this is why it's essential for the judges and the resources to register and be certified with the Sentencing Foundation because how this works out is judges that, that utilize this comprehensive sentencing uh, that provide resources at sentencing and at subsequent status listings. Of course, there has to be status listings to make sure that there's progress that goes there. So at every sentence, every status listing, when you say, you know, defendant, how's the resource doing? And resource, how's the defendant doing? The judge is able to tell, is it because the defendant is not trying or is it because the resource is no good? So if resources, so if defendants give the same kind of negative feedback on a resource, they get scratched off the list and they don't get used anymore. See, that's why it's a comprehensive plan. It's a system of accountability. And whenever either the resource is not being held accountable they get knocked off their off the plan and they don't get any more referrals and they're going to have to survive on their own. And same thing with the defendants. If the defendants don't earnestly try to move forward, then there's a consequence, you know, for them as well. And that consequence is not to just lock them up and throw them away. Sometimes you have to give them a taste of incarceration. I mean, you have to say, okay, you keep not doing this. You say you don't want to go to jail. So you, you have to make sure that everyone stays accountable. And so that is really how you're, we're able to kind of, and also as a process, all of the judges in each jurisdiction are to have vetted meetings where they talk to each other and find out which resources in their jurisdictions are or are not performing. That's the beauty of the actual resource-based sentencing and supervision program because it in and of itself has its checks and balances to know which resources are actually efficacious and which resources are just giving a bunch of, you know, lip service trying to collect money they don't deserve. So where can people know, find more information on the Sentencing Foundation? 
as soon as we drop this website on uh, December 1st, that's how you do it. You jump on the website, you, you put in the paperwork that you want to contact us, and our interns will get right back to you and get you connected, whether you're a resource trying to be connected. Look, at the very beginning, I, you know, you might hear back and say, okay, we don't have a judge in your jurisdiction that is participating yet. So now we'll send folks to that jurisdiction to say, hey, we've got a group of resources here. Are there any judges interested in using it? So there is outreach that the Sentencing Foundation at its very beginning, which is where we are right now, we are at the beginning, there will be outreach trying to pair resources to judges and as each jurisdiction grows and goes further then it starts to mind itself you know what i mean so for the listeners out there this is this is going to be a continuing conversation hopefully we got the sentencing foundation will have a permanent spot on death by incarceration because I believe that jurisdictions across the United States should join the Sentencing Foundation and this new movement. It's a new movement that's going on. I believe our family members in Philadelphia must support you at every step of the way because it is our people, lives on the line. It's very rare that we see someone that's fair, compassion, and basically just want to help instead of just putting you in prison. Again, many of y'all know that I always say it and I will say it over and over again. I am for reform. I am for second chances, but I also stand for justice. I believe that there's a lot of people must go to prison. That's just the bottom line. Uh, they, you know, and I say that because a lot of my fans, a lot of my People say, well, how can you want somebody to go to prison? Uh, when you spend so much time, I'll say this. Oh, uh, I don't want no one living next door to me that's gonna bring harm to my children, my grandmother, the elderly in the community. I believe that the elderly in our communities deserve the chance to sit on their porch without having to worry about gunshots or being shot or robbed. So if you wanna be a knucklehead, and play that route, then they got something for you. But if you are someone that made a mistake, coming home, want a second chance, the Sentencing Foundation is here to help you and to ensure that you don't go back to prison if that's what you want, a second chance. You know, we have not only jobs, programs, college programs. I mean, the Sentencing Foundation is really doing a thing in Philadelphia. You know, y'all just catching up. The world is just catching up. But y'all doing the damn thing in Philadelphia. Every time I see someone that comes to my program at community college, that goes to ICJ, and one of the partners that the Sentencing Foundation is partnering with is someone that we know is not going to contribute to the violence that's going on in Philadelphia. So in a sense, the Sentencing Foundation is contributing to the public safety of our community. And I, that's I, what's important. I, I couldn't agree with you more because that's exactly the point right there, Swab. That's exactly the point is, listen, incarceration is, 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 is a necessary thing. I mean, let's face it. There are some people that are sadistic and evil. There are some people that, you know, in some weird, whacked out way, 
get some sort of pleasure in, in, in mistreating folks and in committing crimes. There are that folks. So incarceration is always going to be there, but mass incarceration is what offends me. And if it doesn't offend you on a personal level, then quite frankly, I'm just not talking to you. Yeah. And on that note, I want you to send a message to our community on why this is so important work that they should get involved. Well, you began to speak about it, hit the nail on the head. It's about public safety. You, what the, the people fail to realize is if you take somebody who's, you know, maybe lost their parents and been on their own since 13 or 14 and only learned how to eat by selling drugs and then they had to protect themselves. So, of course, they got a gun. And, and, and if you're talking about folks that are doing it out of desperation or lack of education, a lot of these people... They don't, they don't expect to live long. They don't have, people with nothing to lose are the most dangerous people in the world. When they get to a, a broken place that's born from trauma, where they don't care about their own lives, how can you expect them to care about yours? How can you expect somebody who's hungry sitting in the corner and watch you eat a fat, juicy steak? At some point, they're going to come take that from you. And if you don't want to give it to them, they might cut your throat. And that, that is just human nature on trying to survive. And so the, the, the message that I have to everyone is the essential nature of resource-based sentencing and supervision is it separates those that are just desperate and have a lack of education and they're giving them a, a stake in society. You, you should see the look on some of the people in my, in my courtroom's face of their face when they pass that GED test for the first time, when they get their first paycheck where they're making $18, $19, $20 an hour, can actually live on it. They then have something to lose. They then have a stake in society. And that's how we make our streets safer. That's how you, it's about public safety. So either you're a person that it, that is on that desperation or, or, or lack of education vibe that needs the help, or you're somebody that's tired of seeing crime. And crime comes from desperation, lack of education, and traumatized folks not getting what they need. You give them a stake in society, and they're going to be probably the most straight, narrow person you've ever met. So that's the message. The message is there is a reason for everybody to, to, to move forward with making resource-based sentencing and supervision be the mechanism that every criminal courtroom utilizes at sentencing and supervision and subsequent supervision. And y'all listening to Suave Gonzalez and the Honorable Stephanie Sawyer from Philadelphia on death by incarceration. And if y'all heard it here first, y'all know it's official. Order in the courtroom. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. 
Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action.